Section 10 of the Underground Railroad, Part 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Fry. The Underground Railroad, Part 4, by William Still. Section 10. Crossing the Bay in a Skiff. William Thomas Cope, John Boyce Gray, Henry Boyce, and Isaac White. These young bondmen, whilst writhing under the tortures heaped upon them, resolved at the cost of life to make a desperate trial for free land, to rid themselves of their fetters at whatever peril they might have to encounter. The land route presented less encouragement than by water. They knew but little, however, concerning either way. After much anxious reflection, they finally decided to make their underground railroad exit by water. Having lived all their lives not far from the bay, they had some knowledge of small boats, skiffs in particular, but of course they were not the possessors of one. Feeling that there was no time to lose, they concluded to borrow a skiff, though they should never return it. So one Saturday evening, toward the latter part of January, the four young slaves stood on the beach near Lewes, Delaware, and cast their longing eyes in the direction of the Jersey shore. A fierce gale was blowing, and the waves were running fearfully high. Not daunted, however, but as one man, they resolved to take their lives in their hands and make the bold adventure. With simple faith, they entered the skiff. Two of them took the oars, manfully to face uncertain dangers from the waves. But they remained steadfast, oft as they felt that they were making the last stroke with their oars, on the verge of being overwhelmed with the waves. At every new stage of danger they summoned courage by remembering that they were escaping for their lives. Late on Sunday afternoon, the following day, they reached their much-desired haven, the Jersey Shore. The relief and joy were unspeakably great, yet they were strangers in a strange land. They knew not which way to steer. True, they knew that New Jersey bore the name of being a free state, but they had reason to fear that they were in danger. In this dilemma they were discovered by the captain of an oyster-boat, whose sense of humanity was so strongly appealed to by their appearance that he engaged to pilot them to Philadelphia. The following account of them was recorded. William Thomas was a yellow man, twenty-four years of age, and possessing a vigorous constitution. He accused Shepherd P. Houston of having restrained him of his liberty, and testified that said Houston was a very bad man. His vocation was that of a farmer, on a small scale. As a slaveholder, he was numbered with the small fry. Both master and mistress were members of the Methodist Church. According to William Thomas's testimony, his mistress as well as his master were very hard on the slaves in various ways, especially in the matter of food and clothing. It would require a great deal of hard preaching to convince him that such Christianity was other than spurious. John stated that David Henry Houston, a farmer, took it upon himself to exercise authority over him. Said John, If you didn't do the work right, he got contrary, and wouldn't give you anything to eat for a whole day at a time. He said a nigger and a mule hadn't any feeling. He described his stature and circumstances somewhat thus. Houston is a very small man. For some time his affairs had been in a bad way. He had been broke. Some say he had bad luck for killing my brother. My brother was sick, but master said he wasn't sick, and he took a chunk, 
and beat on him, and he died a few days after. John firmly believed that his brother had been the victim of a monstrous outrage, and that he too was liable to the same treatment. John was only nineteen years of age, spare-built, chestnut color, and represented the rising mind of the slaves of the South. Henry was what might be termed a very smart young man, considering that he had been deprived of a knowledge of reading. He was a brother of John, and said that he also had been wrongfully enslaved by David Houston, alluded to above. He fully corroborated the statement of his brother, and declared, moreover, that his sister had not long since been sold south, and that he had heard enough to fully convince him that he and his brother were to be put up for sale soon. Of their mistress, John said that she was a pretty easy kind of woman, only she didn't want to allow enough to eat, and wouldn't mend any clothes for us. Isaac was twenty-two, quite black, and belonging to the rising young slaves of Delaware. He stated that he had been owned by a blacksmith, a very hard man, by the name of Thomas Carper. Isaac was disgusted with his master's ignorance, and criticized him in his crude way to a considerable extent. Isaac had learned blacksmithing under Carper. Both master and mistress were Methodists. Isaac said that he could not recommend his mistress, as she was given to bad practices, so much so that he could hardly endure her. He also charged the blacksmith with being addicted to bad habits. Sometimes Isaac would be called upon to receive correction from his master, which would generally be dealt out with a chunk of wood over his no-feeling head. On a late occasion, when Isaac was being chunked beyond measure, he resisted, but the persistent blacksmith did not yield until he had so far disabled Isaac that he was rendered helpless for the next two weeks. While in this state, he pledged himself to freedom and Canada, and resolved to win the prize by crossing the bay. While these young passengers possessed brains and bravery of a rare order, at the same time they brought with them an unusual amount of the soil of Delaware, their persons and old worn-out clothing being full of it. Their appearance called loudly for immediate cleansing. A room, free water, free soap, and such other assistance as was necessary, was tendered them in order to render the work as thorough as possible. This healthy process over, clean and comfortable clothes were furnished, and the change in their appearance was so marked that they might have passed as strangers, if not in the immediate cornfields of their masters, certainly among many of their old acquaintances, unless subjected to the most careful inspection. Raised in the country and on farms, their masters and mistresses had never dreamed of encouraging them to conform to habits of cleanliness. Washing their persons and changing their garments were not common occurrences. The coarse garment once on would be clung to without change as long as it would hold together. The filthy cabins allotted for their habitations were in themselves incentives to personal uncleanliness. In some districts this was more apparent than in others. For some portions of Maryland and Delaware, in particular, passengers brought lamentable evidence of a want of knowledge and improvement in this direction. But the master, not the slave, was blameworthy. The master, as has been intimated, found but one suit for working, and sometimes none for Sunday. Consequently, if Tom was set to ditching one day, and became muddy and dirty, and the next day he was required to haul manure, his ditching suit had to be used. And if the next day he was called into the harvest field, he was still obliged to wear his barnyard suit, and so on to the end. Frequently have such passengers been thoroughly cleansed for the first time in their lives at the Philadelphia station. Some needed practical lessons before they understood the thoroughness necessary to cleansing. 
Before undertaking the operation, therefore, in order that they might be made to feel the benefit to be derived therefrom, they would need to have the matter brought home to them in a very gentle way, lest they might feign to fear taking cold, not having been used to it, etc. It was customary to say to them, quote, We want to give you some clean clothing, but you need washing before putting them on. It will make you feel like a new man to have the dirt of slavery all washed off. Nothing that could be done for you would make you feel better after the fatigue of travel than a thorough bath. Probably you have not been allowed the opportunity of taking a good bath and so have not enjoyed one since your mother bathed you don't be afraid of the water or soap the harder you rub yourself the better you will feel shall we not wash your back and neck for you we want you to look well while travelling on the underground railroad and not forget from this time forth to try to take care of yourself etc etc by this course the reluctance where it existed would be overcome and the proposition would be readily acceded to if the water was not too cool on the other hand if cool a slight shudder might be visible sufficient to raise a hearty laugh yet when through the candidate always expressed a hearty sense of satisfaction and was truly thankful for this attention end of section ten